Drew Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart at the West End Studio Theatre in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? I can't believe I'm 92, and, but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when you come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. Which is a, you know, a good lesson. The first L is listening. And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. But listening and learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories. And tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Wyndham, speaking to us about the importance of stories at the age of 92 at the Alabama Storytelling Festival about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, which is Channel 98 in New Hampshire. We are happy to be here with you tonight. This is our last show of the year. 
So hard to believe, I feel like, but that's <laughs> the deal. Um, so we want to thank those watching and listening, and especially to those who came here tonight to be in our studio audience. Please give yourselves <laughs> some thanks. So our mission here at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. Um, we do very much encourage the development of storytelling skills. We have monthly workshops and offer other assistance to tellers that you'll hear about later on. But we also want you to know that this isn't a competition we're not going to have ranking or scoring or, or judging at all tonight. We really believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that's why we're here. The theme for tonight's show is this very long one, actually, but in, in, right? We, yeah. we stretched this one out. Um, growing up and growing older, coming of age. We have six tellers. We'll actually start with me, Amy Antonucci, Dane Peters, Monique Buchanan, Austin Surrett, Martha Reed Johnson, and Pat Spaulding. Following the storytelling, um, there will be an interview by David Frainer of Austin Surrett, so you can also stay tuned for that. Pat Spaulding will come up and introduce each teller to you before they give their story, and it is time to welcome her up to start doing just that. So come on up, Pat. Hi, everybody. Yes, uh, Amy and I are briefly going to switch roles here. Um, and uh, Tina, are you up back there? You can come here. There's a couple extra seats. While I'm chatting, just, you know, make yourself comfortable. Um, Amy Antonucci is going to be our first teller, and she is our True Tales Live announcer, as you just saw. She's worked with this program since its inception in 2014, and when Amy is not telling stories or running storytelling workshops right here at PPM-TV, she's tending to her bees, poultry, goats, and gardens at her homestead in Barrington, New Hampshire. <laughs> Living Land Permaculture Homestead. From 2008 and 2000, to 2015, Amy helped take care of her aging father. In tonight's story, you'll hear about both of them growing older, but it'll be up to you to decide if either of them is actually being a grown-up. <laughs> <laughs> and now, Amy's story... The tremor. No! <laughs> <laughs> it's a very exciting night here. All right. A scene repeated itself over and over in my head. My father's hand shaking so badly he couldn't sign his name. It had been three months since Irene, my mother, and his wife had died, and two months since we'd sat down together to write thank you notes 
to people who had sent flowers or donations in my mother's name to the MS Society. Or, more accurately, I had written them. (laughs) Since my mother had died, my once-monthly calls had moved up to at least once a day. During one of these, now very frequent check-ins, I asked my dad, Dad, are you sure you know why your hand shakes? Yeah, yeah, Amy, it's just one of those essential tremors. My mother had one, too, when she got older. It's really fine. Don't worry about it. Unconvinced, I pushed. Dad, let me take you to a neurologist. Let's just make sure that's what's going on. Please? Now, Amy, finding some new doctor, that's way too much. We don't need to do that. What about Dr. Butler? Dr. Butler had been my mother's neurologist from the time she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, 30 years before this, until she had just recently died. I had only met him a couple times, but he really kind of felt like a a familiar character in our family. My father brightened at this suggestion. Oh, Dr. Butler? Well, I guess it wouldn't hurt to see him. Now that this was was more of a social call, he was in. (laughs) So an appointment was made, and when the time came, I accompanied him. A trip to Dr. Butler was familiar to my father. He knew the route to drive, where to park, how to navigate the corridors to find the correct office. But he was still withdrawn and quiet, and I wondered if he was worried about what we might find out, or if he was missing my mother, since this was the first time he'd made this trip without pushing her wheelchair in front of him. I thought about my mother. When I was eight years old, my mother drew, drove, my mother drove a bright yellow Ford Pinto, four seats but two doors, and the way that you got into the back was to push a button on the front seat and it, it folded forward. The first symptom that I ever noticed in my mother was her inability to push that button with her right finger to let me in the back. Now, at the age of 38, I looked again at my father's right hand, trembling. There was a pamphlet in the waiting room on Parkinson's, and I couldn't help myself. I picked it up. The same week that my mother died, my partner's father had been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and I was pretty sure that's what my dad had, too. I looked over the the list there, and I started checking things off for him. Shaking, not able to sleep well at night, loss of sense of smell. I wondered how our family was going to be able to cope with yet another neurological disorder. Finally, the doctor appeared and ushered us in. He and my father greeted each other like old friends, smiles and pleasantries. And then the doctor asked, So, John, why are you here? I don't know. It's nothing. It's just, it's just that my daughter, she worries. <laughs> He's clearly angling for a diagnosis of meddlesome offspring. <laughs> 
I, the daughter, with some defensiveness but some encouragement, said, Doctor, you know that John took care of my mom for years. Now I think it's time he take care of himself, put himself first. Don't you think he deserves that? None of this told the doctor what we were there for. <laughs> I tried to take in a deep, calming breath, and I cut it short to yell, It's his hand! Look at his hand! It's shaking! Look at his hand shaking! Oh, the doctor said, Yes, let's see that, John. You know, it's not a thing. It's really not a It's just one of these essential tremors. My mother, she had it too. I just wish it was in my other hand so I could write better. So now that he understood the complaint, the doctor started to run my father through a bunch of tests. Handwriting, walking, memory tests. All of them made my father very uncomfortable. I was on the edge of my seat. The suspense was building. And I had to privately sit on myself to stop from helping my father with all these tests. For instance, my father was given 60 seconds to name all the animals that he could think of. I immediately started making a list in my own head. My father said, 60 seconds? That's not a long time. Did it start yet? Oh, well, there's a dog, and then you can have a cat. And then how about like a lion? It's kind of cat, but not, not a cat. Lion, right? And then there's that animal. What's that animal? You know, it looks funny. It's a funny-looking animal. A zebra! It's a zebra! Did I say dog yet? I wanted to scream. Chicken, duck, goose, turkey, squirrel, fox, rabbit! But of course... Helping him would defeat the whole purpose of all of this. We needed to know what was actually going on. At the same time, I really wanted everything to be all right. As we moved through the tests, I began to despair. I was unimpressed with his performance, and I knew there must be something terribly wrong. When the doctor declared the test done, I said with resignation, all right, Give it to us straight. What is it, and what are our next steps? The doctor answered, I can't find any evidence of neurological problems. Wait, what? but he only named like five animals. And, <laughs> and look at his, his handwriting. I mean, doesn't this point to Parkinson's? No, his results don't line up with that. But all that shaking. Yeah, well... The family history of a central tremor is really too good to pass up. I think he's right. That's what's going on. My father had been following the conversation, looking back and forth between us, and now he said, so, is that good? I was too stunned to even answer, so the doctor stepped in and said, yeah, John, given the many possibilities, I think that is the best scenario you could hope for. My father crossed his arms, and he leaned back, and he said, See, Amy, you hear that? I did good. He was clearly enjoying being right. Maybe he would get the doctor to write a prescription for me to back off. <laughs> However, we both throw 
we both froze at this next word from the doctor. There is an issue that I noticed. It's not neurological in nature, but it will make the essential tremor worse and anxiety and, and other things. Your blood pressure is very high, John. It's too high. Oh, right, yeah, that. I, I, it's really not that bad. You know, it's the bottom number you've got to look at, he told the doctor. I don't agree, John. Having a blood pressure in this range is detrimental to your health. I vaguely knew that my father had issues with his blood pressure. Growing up, they'd call it borderline blood pressure. And in deference to this issue, we really never used salt in our household, which didn't work out great for me. I later found out I had low blood pressure, which is why now and then I would stand up quickly and fall right over. But I was led to think, I was led to think that it was a successful treatment for my father. The doctor took out his prescription pad even as my father continued to protest. John, you should see your primary care doctor for an evaluation and to continue treatment, but you need to do something now. All right, all right, fine. My father was now ready for this, uh, this visit to be over. On the way back to the house, I wanted to focus on the good news. Aren't you lucky, Dad, that you don't have a neurological problem? You must be so happy. I know I am. Yeah, Amy, I did well, right? I told you, there's nothing wrong with me. Well, that's not exactly what the doctor said. You know, he brought up that you have this blood pressure issue, but all you have to do is take one simple medication. But, Amy, I don't like to take pills. I don't take pills. Well, you already take antidepressants. You have for years. So you can probably take this at the same time. It won't feel any different. Oh, no, Amy, I don't take those anymore. But you and Mom both took them, and she said she could tell if you stopped because you got really unhappy. This is actually a watered-down version of what my mother would have said, which would have been more like, when your idiot father goes crazy and starts ranting about leaving me now and forever, I know he's been flushing his Prozac. <laughs> Surprised, I kept on pushing on this, and he said, well, you know, Amy, your mother, she believed in that stuff, but I don't, so I don't do that anymore. I don't take any pills. It occurred to me that the same moment that my father had lost his wife, he had suddenly stopped taking his mood stabilizers. No wonder he was shaky. I wanted to argue. I wanted to push. I wanted to tell him I knew what was best for him, and he needed to do that. In other words, I felt myself turning into my mother, <laughs> which gave me a chill and an idea. Dad, do you know what Irene would say to you right now? He straightened up, his eyes widened, and his voice became hushed. No, what would Irene say? He seemed to think I had secret information. <laughs> or maybe I was like channeling her spirit. But I actually just said a variation of what I'd heard her say a thousand times. John, you idiot. Take the effing f pills and shut up. <laughs> I wasn't sure how we would take this. After a beat, 
He burst out laughing. Oh, Amy, it's so nice. You remember your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amy. (laughs) We all remember our mothers. Dane Peters is up next. He lives with his wife, Chris, in Greenland, New Hampshire. A longtime lover of parenting, teaching, leadership, and writing, he has captured many of his life's experiences. Maybe I should talk over here. All righty. He has captured many of his <laughs> life's experiences by telling stories, writing articles, keeping a blog, Dane's education blog, and by authoring two books. Dane is the vice president of the Seacoast Repertory Theater Board of Trustees and is a member of Senior Repertory Theater, an acting troupe for senior citizens. He is devoted to finding purpose by volunteering with community organizations. He reads to children at least once a week and still consults with schools throughout the U.S. and China. Dane keeps busy. Tonight, he will tell us a story about his special love for reading to children. It's titled... Growing up, sharing stories, a passion for sure. Come on up, Jane. Dane. I didn't mean to. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. So my whole life, I have loved stories as a child, as a parent, as an educator, and now as a grandparent. I love to read to children. And there were two times two moments in my life that really solidified it and moved me forward. Two moments. I'll I'll get to those. But for right now, give you a little background, a little history. So when my children were small, say three, four years old, I would read to them. I would read books and we'd do it just when it was just before it was bedtime. And they were lying down ready and I would start, pick up a book and I'd start reading. This one book we're going to read tonight is Bafo and the Great Motorcycle Race. Uh, Had it not been for milk, I would have never won the Great Motorcycle Race. (laughs) All of the top riders, Sam Sunday, Toots Eleven, but my most dangerous rival, Rudy, a mustachioed villain, would stop at nothing to win. On a long uphill stretch, Rudy reached into his jacket and pulled out a can of nails and threw them in front of my motorcycle. What was I to do? And at that point, I would say, okay, let's, uh, let's time to go to bed. It's getting late now. <laughs> and they would look at me. My son would look at me. I have two sons. And uh, they say, no, Dad, you can't do that. This is the important part of the story. I said, okay, I'll, let's, let's finish it, okay? And to this day, I get that back tenfold. They're, they're in their 40s now. And any time they can do that to me, in some way, <laughs> it happens. The next thing that happened was, it was just back in the spring, I was invited to teach I mean, to, to read to a preschool class at a school in Battery Park in Manhattan. 
And this was a beautiful school. But the children were two, two and a half years old. And I haven't read to them very often, that young. They're, that's pretty young time. But I did have an ace in the pocket. I brought my other special book called The Fish Story. And so I'm sitting down. As I sat down, I looked at the picture window behind them, and there was a Statue of Liberty right there. It was absolutely gorgeous. But I had my book, and they were looking at me. And that's an important part of this is I'm able to turn the pages, read the book, but also look at them and capture their eyes, just as I'm doing with you right now. So pay attention. And that's the part that is really inspirational because they're looking right at you. So anyway, Fish Story starts out, Oh, I want to get out of here. This pod is so small. I want to see the world, said Little Fish. Hey, what are you doing down there? said Big Cat. Oh, I want to get out of here. I want a bigger pod. I want to see the world. Oh, I can show you the world. Let me go get a plastic bag, and I'll put you in it, and I'll show you the world. As Big Cat licked his lips. And of course, by this time, the kids are looking like, is that fish really talking? Is the cat talking? What's going on? Cats and fishes don't get along. Granted, they're two and a half years old, two and a half year old, but they're getting it. And I just get so excited about it, and that's what propels me to do it even more. But the first turning point, the first moment about storytelling came about 15 years ago when I was at a school in Brooklyn, New York. And these were children, four, five, six, seven years old. I went to their classroom, and I had a classic, a favorite. Miss Nelson is Missing. You may or may not have heard of it, but it's a really popular book. And so I'm reading the book, turning the pages, and I'm about halfway through, and all of a sudden I hear, (laughs) I said, Dane, don't go there. Just just (laughs) let it go. And I read another sentence, and then it's, (laughs) and I just lost it. I just started laughing. Like, and I was laughing and laughing so hard. And the kids were all wondering, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, one of the kids says, he fought it. He fought it. And that made me laugh even harder. Another kid says, yeah, he fought it. And then finally, the teacher says, uh, Dane, we need to finish the book. And this was being videotaped the whole time. <laughs> And, and if you want to see that video, it's on my blog. I cherish that. But it just, having so much fun with the kids over a story is wonderful. Just like in the opening about laugh, being able to laugh is so important. So when my wife, Chris, and I, by the way, happy birthday. When my wife and I left Brooklyn, we came to Portsmouth to be with our two granddaughters. And this is where the second piece, the second inspiration comes in. And we got up here, and uh, I was looking for something to do. How can I read stories? Well, I read at their school, in their classes. But then I bumped into United Way's K-Ready Readers. And essentially, it's a program where they assign you to a school, and you go and read. I was assigned to Sea Coast Community School in Portsmouth. It's a preschool. 
And this was about a year and a half ago, and I was assigned to a classroom that had three, four, and five-year-old children. And I got to tell you, it is just so wonderful. I go in there, and I bring three books at 10 o'clock, always on time. And they, as soon as I walk into the classroom, Didi, Didi, what are you going to read? That's my name. My grandkids named me that. Um, what, do you, what do you got today? Did you bring a stuffy? Did you bring a stuffy? Which is a little, I always bring a stuffed animal that applies to the story that I'm going to, one of the stories I'm going to read. And I read the stories, and they just, we just have a great time. Well, one Wednesday before I'm going in on that Thursday, I stopped by the Greenland Library, and I know the librarian well, and I said, what have you got for me this week? And she said, oh, I've got a great book for you. You're going to love this book. It's only one word. The title and the dialogue in it is just one word. And essentially, it's about two beavers, and they're surfers. And they have their surfboard in the first page, and uh, the word is dude. (laughs) That's the title of the book, and that's the dialogue in the book, or the monologue, I should say. (laughs) And so I bring it to the kids, and I read my first two stories, and I show them this book. I said, you know, you could read this book, too. Open the first page, and there's one beaver looking at the other with his, by his surfboard and the ocean's right out there. Dude. <laughs> and the other one looks at the first one and goes, dude. And the kids, they start breaking up. They just say, I, I get it. I think I now know what the word dude means and how it applies. So these two beavers are out surfing and they see a seagull. One of them sees a seagull and goes, Dude, and the seagull go by, goes by the other one, and he plops right on the other beaver's head, and he goes, "Dude," <laughs> the kids are taking this all in so beautifully, and they're actually kind of screeching and screaming, and the teacher's saying, "Oh, settle down, settle down," and uh, then what happens is they meet up with a shark out there, and they both look at each other and go, "Dude." And the kids are just going crazy. So I'm thinking, okay, we finished the book. They loved it. I come in the next week. Did you bring dude? Did you bring dude? (laughs) And I said, no, no. So the next week I thought I'm going to bring dude in. I bring dude in. And sure enough, the same thing over again. So this was maybe two months ago. I bring in dude every time. Because if I don't bring it in, they're going to be disappointed. I actually bought them their own dude book. (laughs) So that in case, the one time when I went and it was checked out, I couldn't bring it in. But I'm going to go as long as the teacher will let me. But that was the second high point that says, I ain't stopping this. You know, I'm going to do it for another 40 years, just reading to children. And I just absolutely love it. And I hope that you can do the same thing with your own families, your own child. It's United Way, K-Ready Readers, if you are inspired at all. But do a lot of reading for kids. Thank you. Dude. Hey. Dude. 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 <laughs> um, my dad had a, a seagull plop on his head once. 
He didn't say dude. <laughs> that wasn't the word that came to mind. <laughs> Next up, we have Monique um, Buchanan. <laughs> she lives with her husband and four cats in Exeter, New Hampshire. She has a master's degree in writing, literature, and publishing from Emerson College and has worked over 20 years as a communications professional, writing mostly online. After two years working as a self-employed life coach, which must have been interesting, Monique began to delve back into her love of writing and is now working on a book about her French-Canadian ancestry on her father's side. Tonight's story is about her father, a man whom she confides that for most of her life, she never got to know really well. We'll find out more about him in her story titled Dad, the Speed Demon. Come on up, Monique. It's 20 years ago. It's Christmas Day, 1998, and I'm at my brother Serge's house in Duxbury, Massachusetts. Serge is actually my half-brother. He's 20 years older than I am. Our dad was married to his mom before he married my mom when my dad was 56. Serge and his wife Caroline and his two daughters, Lindsay and Renee, they live in this beautiful house that Serge built for them. I'm sitting in their living room, and the phone rings, and I hear Serge pick it up in the kitchen. Dad, what's going on? What? Where? Oh, my God. Dad, I can't believe it. And my stomach starts to flutter and sweat breaks out as I try to imagine what might have occurred. Our 88-year-old father had decided to drive from upstate New York to come join us in Duxbury, Massachusetts for Christmas. He had just purchased an old beat-up clunker of a car, a Toyota station wagon with who knows how many miles on it but definitely enough that it wasn't considered of much value. I remember vaguely Serge telling me that he helped Dad to buy this car reluctantly because of my dad's age and because of his often death-defying stunts as a driver. <laughs> I recall clearly the last time Dad and I drove up from New York to Duxbury together. This was when I was living a town over from him before I'd moved to Boston. Like the speed demon driver, he'd been his whole life, he was driving really fast on the, on the throughway. And he had his Mazda back then, which was a much more dependable car of his that he had owned. It was the same one that I had learned to drive in. And I'd been eyeing the speedometer as the needles inching ever upward, and I'm tempted to say something to him, but I don't. I know what he would say. He'd say, I've been driving my whole life. I've never caused a bad accident. Don't worry. We're safe. But it wasn't really for my own safety that I was concerned. After all, he had taught me to drive, and I was an excellent driver. Minutes later, as I had silently predicted, the blue lights go on behind us, and we're forced to pull over <laughs> to the side of the highway. Dad lowers his window. The state trooper, who's a young man, comes over to the door and peers inside. And I see the confusion registered on his face when he sees this old man sitting in the driver's seat. He paused for a brief moment before he spoke. Sir, 
Are you aware that I clocked you going more than 90 miles an hour? <laughs> Dad admits that he wasn't aware. <laughs> Pay attention to the speed limit, sir. You should not be driving this fast. The cop goes back to his car to write up the ticket, and Dad looks worried. When the cop comes back, Dad asks him, uh, Sir, do you know how much this ticket is going to cost? And the cop says, Probably over $100. It's something like $50 for five miles over the speed limit, and then $10 for every mile over that. Dad, he was a retired artist. He'd never had much money. He didn't have a savings account or a pension. So I felt bad for him. This was going to be a costly ticket. But I was also glad, because maybe this would teach him to slow down. <laughs> As Serge talks to Dad on the phone, I can hear in his voice that he's getting agitated, but he's trying to stay calm. All right, so you sure you're all right? Okay, I'll come get you, but it's going to take a while, because I'm finishing up dinner, and Worcester's like an hour and a half from here, so sit tight. And he hangs up the phone. And I've come over to the open-plan kitchen, and his wife Caroline is in the kitchen cleaning up, and she looks up at the, ki- at the ceiling and says, let me guess, it was his car. And Serge scowls, and he looks angrier than I've ever seen him. I warned him, I told him, he says, that car is not for driving long, long distance because it's just not safe. It's just for getting him back and forth to the store. It started giving him problems on the throughway, and I guess he pulled off into a rest stop, and a woman took pity on him and drove him as far as a hotel off the highway in Worcester, but she couldn't drive him any closer, so that's where he called me from. He sits down at the dining table, and he takes a deep breath and says, I'm tempted to just leave him there and teach him a lesson because he's so (laughs) obstinate. I laugh. I want to lighten the mood, so I say... Mom used to tell us that having Dad around was like raising a fourth child. And Serge has to chuckle and says, yeah, that's pretty accurate. (laughs) Dad had a thing about driving. He always loved to drive his whole life. But it seemed now to be the only thing that he had that gave him any kind of sense of freedom. Everything else that he cared about had been taken away from him. His diabetes and long-term suffering from sciatica caused him to not to made it difficult for him to do anything creative, and he hadn't painted anything in years. I'm really pissed, Serge says, when I sit down next to him at the table. You know the way he drives, he really beats on his cars. I really told him that he should be careful with this one. I knew what he meant, because Dad would drive his cars as if they were racing cars. He would skip over gears and higher speeds and, and downshift to slow down. He had this love-hate relationship with the, with the stick shift. He would never buy a car with an automatic, but every car that he'd owned had to have its clutch replaced. <laughs> he is a risk-taker, I say. You know how he always waits the last minute to fill his tank up with gas. Oh, yeah, classic dad maneuver, Serge agreed. Did I ever tell you about the time that we were driving and ran out of gas right before the Tappan Sea Bridge, I ask? Serge shakes his head. No, what happened? It was scary, but it was funny, too, because we had to pull off, and this guy comes up behind us and asks us what's wrong, and it turns out he's a Bible salesman. (laughs) Serge says, Dad must have loved that because he hated religion. (laughs) I know, but the guy was nice. He got us a tank of gas, and then when he came back, he gave Dad a free Bible. (laughs) 
Serge looks incredulous. I can't expect he ever read that. I don't know, but I know he still has the book, and maybe he did it because he realized how lucky we were that day, because we could have easily broken down on the bridge. Serge says, I can't believe that Dad never killed anyone or killed himself the way he drives. I was thinking about that myself, as I remembered a time when I was with my boyfriend and a friend of ours, and Dad was driving us somewhere. And Dad was doing his classic driving moves where he's going around corners way too widely and sometimes into the opposite lane that comes the opposite direction. And the friend was in the back seat clutching my hand saying, please don't let us crash, please don't let us crash, <laughs> cutting off the circulation in my fingers. <laughs> he's like the cat with nine lives, I say to Serge. Mom told us that the reason why the fence at the bottom of Hudson Terrace in Piermont was bent over was because Dad is driving down the hill in, our in her Volkswagen bug and crashed into the fence. Serge says, yeah, I know exactly where you mean. There's a steep drop below that fence. And I say, I know. And the thought of him plunging to his death gave me nightmares for years. Well, says Serge, I know it might sound strange, but I kind of admire Dad for the way he is. Yeah, he's difficult and scares us, but he's at least true to himself. I mean, what other 88-year-old do you know who would drive five hours in a clunker of a car? I say, you know, I do too. His stubbornness to keep living his life as if he never got old. That's, that's admirable. But then I get kind of teary-eyed, and I say, what are we going to do when we have to tell him he can't drive anymore? I don't know, Serge says. God help us. So Dad drove a car up until he was almost 90 years old, and he passed away at 91, about a month after 9-11. And I just feel like the world is a less colorful place since he went. Thanks, Monique. My grandfather, Louis, um, he drove fast, faster when he was older than, than he did when he was younger, after my grandmother died. And, and um, I would travel with him only um, if I drove. My parents made him promise and me promise. But one time, when he was driving on his own, he, he passed on a, a curve, you know, a double line. He passed somebody, and coming in the other direction was a policeman. <laughs> and so the policeman, you know, had to ditch and turn around. Um, he gave my grandfather a good talking to, and that did slow him down for a bit. It's one of those things, old dudes, they got to get the power somewhere. <laughs> Cars. Next up, we have Austin Sorette. He is a writer who publishes frequently in PortsmouthNH.com. His fiction and essays have appeared in newspapers and journals all over New England, including Sandpaper, The Wire, and The Voices of Crack Skulls. His first book of poetry, titled These Days, was published in January through UFXO Publishing. Austin asks us, have you ever thought of an excuse to use to get out of an uncomfortable situation? If so, he advises and you should probably keep doing that. He will now, now tell us a cautionary tale to explain why. It is appropriately titled, Excuses. 
excuses. <laughs> Come on up, Austin. Good night. Um, <clears throat> as a kid, I had a uh, reputation amongst my friends for coming up with excuses to get out of doing anything social. And I used all the classics. I, you know, forgot I had to attend my grandmother's birthday on Fridays after school. I had to bury dead pets at 9 p.m. on a Saturday night. Uh, when you're 16 years old, it just seems easy to be perceived as a terrible grandson or the world's most neglectful pet owner than a lame person to hang out with. Uh, and one Saturday night, though, my friends, Ed and Jordan, uh, refused to believe that my goofy ass was really going on a date with a girl from another school. Uh, and they coaxed me into going to a party with them. Uh, and um, Ed and I had been close for years. Uh, we shared everything together. We shared secrets, thoughts, music, joints. Uh, Jordan was a new friend. Uh, he usually only showed up to hang out uh, when he needed an excuse to smoke cigarettes and drink. Uh, so we saw him a lot on the weekends, and then on the weeknights, and then on the weekdays. Uh, the three of us met at um, 7 o'clock at Ed's house that night. Uh, and after an hour of playing video games, Ed asked when the party was going to start. Well, it starts whenever we finish off what's in the fridge, Jordan said. He hopped out of his seat and came back a few seconds later with three cans. And at first I mistook them for Pepsis, but after cracking open the tab, I didn't pick up a sugary scent. Uh, rather, I smelled what I had come to associate as the stench of homeless people. Uh, actually, I don't think I've ever had a beer before, I said, reading the words Bud Light on the can. Uh, Jordan had already finished his and crushed the can underneath his shoe. Um, well, it's going to be your last, Oss, so drink up because you're in for a big night. And we cracked beers over and over again for an hour or so. Uh, eventually, I found myself lying in the back seat of Ed's mother's car, watching the world spin outside the window. Uh, and we were driving through downtown Concord uh, on our way to pick up Gabe, another friend of ours. Uh, Jordan was sitting in the passenger seat, smoking a cigarette. He turned to me and said, Oss, I can't think straight. Hand me a beer. Uh, and I knew that what Jordan said didn't sound right, but at the time I also realized that I wasn't exactly thinking straight either. Uh, so I pulled two beers out from under Ed's seat to ponder the situation with a little more clarity. Uh, Jordan, don't crack a friggin' beer in my car, Ed said. Uh, Jordan told Ed not to be a wuss. And I looked at Ed through the rearview mirror waiting to see if he would make eye contact with me. And he kept his eyes focused on the road. Uh, and I just waited long enough for Jordan to tell me to stop being a wuss. Uh, he reached over, snatched the beer out of my hands, and after Jordan cracked it open, Ed had growled, because uh, he had only gotten his license six months ago. We arrived at Gabe's house shortly after, and Ed unlocked the trunk. And as we hustled through the yard with his case of beer and snuck it through Gabe's kitchen, I began to understand why Jordan and all these kids my age uh, enjoyed alcohol. It was a freedom for my brain that I had never experienced before. The thought of the party which had scared me into this valley of cowardice now seemed conquerable, uh, and I felt as though nothing could stop me. We walked into Gabe's basement. Uh, he had invited two guests, two guys, two girls, uh, none of whom I had recognized. And regardless, they shouted, they're here, they're here, and we thought that they knew us, so we expected hugs and high fives. And... But when they started shoving their hands in the case, we realized that they were just happy to see the beer. 
let's polish off these brews and then we'll go, one of the guests said. Jordan scoffed. Why don't we just bring these beers with us? And Gabe asked, do you mind, Ed? And Ed cringed. He knew it was a bad idea, and I said nothing. Of course you don't mind, Jordan said. Only wussies don't bring beer to a dance party. So we each drank a beer, and then we lugged the box up the stairs and out to the car. Uh, I didn't help carry the case, and I still stand by that today. (laughs) We arrived just shy of 10 o'clock and parked across the street from the house. Uh, We spotted a couple of friends of ours smoking cigarettes in the driveway. Uh, So Ed, Jordan, and I uh, jumped out of the car to go chat with them while the others were pulling beer out of the uh, trunk of Ed's car. Um, There wasn't very much ice on the road, but I still was trying to keep my balance on the pavement. And at that time, I had heard of seeing double, but watching the house split into two identical houses and then kind of swirl around a bit and then come together like an amoeba wasn't so much seeing as it was just tripping. (laughs) Um, And I heard a voice behind me, and Jordan said, Hey, Oss, if you can't see straight, you should probably have another beer. So Stan, one of the smoking kids, greeted us. What you gangsters up to? Jordan told him about our night and asked Stan if he had been inside yet. Not yet, man. We just parked and... Oh, snap! Stan pointed behind us and we all whirled around. Uh, blue lights flashed rhythmically like an adrenaline-induced heartbeat through the snowy trees. Uh, Gabe and his guests were standing outside of the open trunk of Ed's car, the case of Bud Light, in the slush at Gabe's feet with a single can standing next to it. Uh, the police were looking down and scribbling on a pad of paper. Five O, Dan said, and panic impaled us. We had no idea what to do. And Dan just shouted, Peel into the woods! And I had never peeled into the woods before, especially from the police, because I was an honor roll student and not a banana. Uh, and before my body could register fear, I found myself bouncing through three feet of fresh snow into the depths of the New Hampshire forest with four other kids looking suspiciously like they shouldn't be walking through the woods at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. Uh, and suddenly Ed yelled, and Jordan and I stopped literally in our tracks. Uh, and the other boys bounded into the shadows of the pines and disappeared into the night. Uh, my car is there, he said. My car is open, and the police are in front of my car. Uh, and he cursed a lot. Uh, and Jordan and I looked towards the footprints leading into the darkness, and then we looked back into the grim porch light. Look, Ed, Jordan said. Let's just go inside the party. They won't know it's your car. These kids won't rat. Let's just go inside and have a good time and forget about it. And Jordan started walking towards the house, and instinctively I started walking too without saying anything. Uh, But my eyes drew back to Ed like a magnet, and it took him a long time to turn and retrace his steps out of the snow and back into the driveway. And we entered the house and descended the basement steps. You know, the room was packed with full, full of people. We were all sardines in this vacuum-sealed can, and everybody was sweaty. And as Jordan tried convincing Ed that the accused kids wouldn't rat us out, I watched the faces of all the party-goers just kind of blur together. They fl- the strobe lights flashed these purple bulbs to the beat of all this bass-heavy house music, and they flashed on these sweaty faces I couldn't recognize over and over again from the blackness and everything was spinning like a flushing toilet and smelled of Axe body spray. And I was about to push my way through these crowds of people to find a bathroom when the lights exploded in the ceiling and everybody shaded their eyes and looked at the top of the steps where a redheaded cop was standing there. 
and he called out Ed's name. You must step forward now, the cop said. The party is being shut down, uh, and he, doesn't, he didn't hesitate. Ed weaved in and out of the partygoers who were frozen in place. Uh, they stared at him with utter astonishment, and not because this kid was getting in trouble, but because he had single-handedly shut down this entire party that everybody was having such a great time at. Um, he climbed the stairs and left with the cop, uh, and fear was clawing its way through my stomach and into my throat. And all of a sudden, Jordan leans over to me and whispers, okay, so those kids might have ratted, but Ed won't rat on us. He is not going to throw us under the bus. Um, and all the partygoers poured out of the house, and everybody was looking down at their shoes, trying to pretend that they were sober. Um, Jordan approached one of our friends and asked for a ride home. Meanwhile, Ed was face-to-face with the chief of police. Uh, he looked like a puppy being scolded by his owner. And the cop had his foot on the case of beer. Gabe and the guests were standing next to the trunk of the car, watching Ed just as helplessly as I was. Um, a hard grip uh, crushed my bicep, and I turned around. It was my friend uh, with the van who was going to take us home with an already very illegal amount of passengers. Nobody was sober. Um, and I remember the door slammed, and this silence came over everything. Uh, the ignition roared, and the van pulled away slowly. And I looked out the back window. Um, Ed was now in a set of handcuffs uh, and watched the cops open the back door uh, of their cruiser. And my head flooded with these dark thoughts. These fears that I had of being caught disappeared and washed away with an even more intense emotion, uh, which was guilt. And Jordan and Gabe and the others have since left town a long time ago, uh, but Ed and I are still close to this day. We still drink together, uh, and sometimes we talk about that night, and I remind him that if I was in his situation, I would have done the same thing. He always smiles and says he believes me, uh, but I wasn't the one who got arrested. He was. And without an avenue to prove my truth, I'm still walking alone, free, to continue making excuses for why I wasn't put in the car with him over and over again. Uh, when we left the party, Jordan was staring forward, looking at the road ahead of us as we started moving. One by one, the other passengers looked ahead as well, waiting to get out of the cop's range of blue light. I watched Ed shrink further into the distance until he vanished from sight behind a street corner. Uh, and then I, too, stared forward, all the while thinking of what excuse I was going to give my parents to explain why I would be coming home so early. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Austin. Did you find a good excuse to give your parents for showing up at home early? I don't think they believe me. <laughs> oh, I forgot my glasses. Let me see if I can read this without them. <laughs> okay. Next up, we have Martha Reed Johnson. She hails from south of the border all the way down in Massachusetts. You've heard of that state. But... She has recently become a frequent traveler to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to share and listen to the great stories we tell right here at True Tales Live. She is a school counselor and behavior specialist and also a caregiver to her 86-year-old mother and the 200-year-old home that they share. Martha is a storyteller, a listener, and a lover of good stories. Tonight, 
She will tell us about three generations of trouble and forgiveness in a story titled The Watch. Come on up, Martha. It's 1937 in Thomaston, Connecticut. And Teddy lives in a house with his little brother Will and his mom and his dad. Teddy thought his dad was the coolest man in the whole world. His father worked for Seth Thomas Clock Company, and his job was to install and repair tower clocks all around New England. And Teddy could just picture his dad hanging from the ropes with his tool belt on, sitting in that harness, fixing those clocks. Teddy wanted to be just like his father. And every time he could get a hand on his father's tools, he would pretend to fix things. He loved that. But the Christmas that he turned five in 1937, he got his very first tool belt. It had pliers and screwdrivers and some really cool flat lead pencils and a hammer. That was Teddy's favorite tool. And he decided he could fix everything with a hammer. (laughs) And so he did. And shortly after that Christmas, it began to snow. We all know this in New England. It started to snow and snow and snow. And Teddy was stuck inside for several days. And he fixed things in the basement, banging on the pipes, and then he would go up the stairs and banging on every tread on the way up, and he began to fix things on the main level of the house. And then he started on the stairs, upstairs, and found himself in his mom and dad's bedroom. He knew he wasn't supposed to be there, but he had seen a little nail pop in the hardwood floors and had stepped across the threshold to bang that nail in, and then he found himself standing right in front of his father's nightstand. And there on the nightstand was a green velvet box. And Teddy knew exactly what was in that box. It was a gold pocket watch from Seth Thomas Clock Company that his father had gotten as as an award for great work. And and there was a matching watch that had been given to President Woodrow Wilson. And now it was at the Smithsonian. And the watch only came out on Sunday mornings because his father would take it out of the box and put it in his vest pocket to go off to church. And there Teddy stood in in front of the nightstand looking at the green velvet box, and he just opened it. He was just going to look. And then he picked the watch up, and it was heavy. It was as heavy as his hammer. And he was looking at that sparkly gold and the white porcelain face and and those really, really delicate hands that were going around, and, and suddenly, bang, he just banged that watch and the glass broke and then bang little pieces of porcelain began to fly off and the hands all bent and suddenly he realized what he'd done and then he heard his father's voice as the back door slammed dad i'm home and teddy quickly cleaned up the mess and he ran across the hallway to his bedroom and he threw the hammer underneath the bed and he opened up the window and he pitched the watch out into the snow closed the window and sat down thinking What am I going to say? How am I going to tell? And he stayed there until he heard his mother's voice. Teddy, it's time for dinner. And he ran to the bathroom and he washed his hands and he combed his hair and then he wet his hair to comb down those curls and went down to the kitchen, sat down quietly 
and ate everything on his plate. <laughs> and when his dinner was over, he said, Mom, can I help you with the dishes? She said, okay, Teddy, you can dry. And Teddy dried, and she washed. And when he was done, he went into the living room and sat down and played with his one-year-old brother, Will. And his mother just kind of looked at him. And then he heard his father's footsteps up the stairs and down the hallway. And he heard his father's voice. Flick? Or Dot, have you seen my watch? And Dot called back. No, Flick, I haven't seen your watch. Are you sure? No, Flick, I, I haven't seen it. Teddy didn't say a word. And Teddy didn't say away a word for days. And then Sunday morning. And random times as the months went by when Flick would say, Dot, have you seen my watch? Teddy said nothing. And then spring finally came. The snow was gone, and it was a Saturday. And Teddy was sitting in the kitchen table, and his dad said, Come on, Teddy, let's go out and clean up the yard. And Ted loved to work in the yard with his dad. He had a rake that was his very own size, and he went out and was cleaning up in the yard. And then he watched his dad working near the shrubs underneath his bedroom window. And he watched his dad rake out the leaves, and then he saw his dad bend down and pick something up. And Teddy saw his father slump his shoulders and just stare at his hand, and he knew. And he mustered up all the courage he could muster in his recently turned six-year-old body, and he went and stood before his father and said, I, I did that to your watch. I didn't mean to. It just, it just kind of happened. His father looked at him and said, I know, Teddy. I know. Let's go inside. Well, Teddy did grow up, and he grew up to have five children of his own. They were all trouble. They didn't mean to be. They just were, <laughs> just like their father. Well, when Teddy's children were nearing their teenage years, Teddy got a phone call from his mom. His father had just died of a massive heart attack, and Teddy went to his family's home and helped his mom clean up things and prepare for the funeral. And that evening he was sitting on the couch and his mother came down the stairs and across the living room and she sat down next to Teddy and she had something in her pocket. And she said, you know, after spending time with you and all your kids, your dad and I had talked about this and we thought you might need this. And she pulled out a, gold, a green velvet box and Teddy opened it and there was a broken, beat up, tarnished pocket watch he could just barely make out the letters Seth Tom on the broken face. He took it out of the box and held it in the palm of his hand, and it was still heavy in that palm. And he looked at his mother, and he wiped a tear from his eye, and he said, You saved this? Dad saved it? His mom said, Yeah, and we think you need it now. <laughs> well, Teddy, without saying anything, went back home. And he tied a little piece of fish line on that watch, and he hung it above the mantelpiece fireplace. And when Teddy's children were trouble, as they often were, Teddy would pace in front of the fireplace and stare at the wall. His kids never knew why he did that. They just watched and waited. <laughs> well, Teddy's children grew up and had children of their own. And Teddy had eight grandchildren, seven grandsons, and one granddaughter. 
And the Christmas of 1997, the family was all gathered in the old home. Teddy had grown proficient with tools and had restored a 200-year-old farmhouse. It was beautiful. The front hallway had just been re-wallpapered up the stairs to the second floor. And Teddy's grandson, Joel, not yet five years old, found a fat, black, permanent magic marker (laughs) and started at the bottom of the stairs to practice his letters on the wall. J, O. He was on the E just as I came around the corner. Joel was mine. (laughs) I smelled the Sharpie before I saw the kid, but then I saw the letters going up the wall, and I screamed, Joel, what are you doing? And I took that first step ready to grab him midway up the stairs, and my father grabbed my shoulder and pulled me back. He said, Marty, come with me. (laughs) And he took me into the living room, and he stood me and planted my feet in front of the fireplace and, and made me face the mantle. And he began to pace. (laughs) Oy, I knew the pacing. And then he went over and picked up a pair of scissors, and he snipped that little piece of fishing line. And he brought the watch to me and put it in my palm of my hand. I had never noticed it on the wall. It filled the palm of my hand. It was tarnished and broken and beaten, and I could barely make out the letters Seth Tom. I said, Dad. Was this Grandpa Flick's watch? He said, yeah. Let me tell you a story (laughs) about a boy with a hammer. And then he said, I got this watch shortly after you repainted our kitchen with your splatter paint. And Flick and I had to repaint the kitchen. When he died, Grandma gave it to me, said I might need it. He said, for years now, I've wondered who should get this watch. (laughs) And I think you and Joel are going to need it. (laughs) And from that day to this, on the mantelpiece above my fireplace sits a shadow box with a picture of my father and a broken, beat-up watch. And when Joel is Joel, I pace in front of the fireplace and remember that growing up is all about trouble and forgiveness. (laughs) (laughs) Pat Spaulding lives in Rye, New Hampshire. She is a monologist majorette who spins tails around town and twirls a baton with the leftist marching band. She has written and performed several one-woman shows, including We Stayed Together for the Puppets, A Bomb in the Closet, and Dancing with Dad. But for the last four years, she has focused primarily on enjoying her role as MC of this very program, True Tales Live, where she listens to, learns from, and encourages the stories of others. Through most of her childhood, Pat had the good fortune of living in close proximity to all four of her grandparents. She has never lacked for attention. The story she'll tell tonight features her grandmother, Ada Lucy Nutbrown Spaulding, 
and it's titled The Cloud Game. Pat? There was a path, a well-worn path, that went from the kitchen door of the house where I grew up to my grandmother's kitchen door. And from the time that I was four years old, so long as I told my mother where I was going, I could cross that path from one door to the next all by myself. This path did not cross a road, and it didn't go through a neighbor's yard. It was simply a small knoll that had pine trees growing on it. So I would get to my grandmother's kitchen, and her kitchen smelled like baking bread or the burnt sugar on the crust of a pie. She had a flour bin that pulled out underneath the counter, and it must have held about 10 pounds of gold medal flour at any one time. She never got Miller's because she was constantly just shoveling out that flour into bowls and whipping up things like um, Brown Betty and Apple Pan Dowdy and Blueberry Buckle and Boston Cream Pies and donuts and cakes and cookies. My favorite kind of cookie was... uh, Cornflake cookie with maraschino cherry right in the center. (laughs) Now, she was not only a baker. (laughs) She was a fashionable lady, my grandmother. She wore hats well. And she even had a milliner in Nashua, New Hampshire, who designed hats to go with the coats and the dresses that she bought new. She was the president of the fortnightly club of um, the, the community church for probably 20 years because she was really good at it. And so they kept electing her president. She could set a a table and she could, you know, put on a spread and she could organize people to get things done. And uh, my grandfather was her able assistant. He always helped her get things out on the tables and pick things up when uh, it needed to be brought back and, you know, resemble a church again. Um, my grandmother could do everything, except maybe the laundry. <laughs> she, couldn't, she couldn't hang clothes, um, because when she was 55 years old, before I was born, she had a major stroke, which paralyzed her whole right side. My parents called it Grammy's shock, and I figured that, well, a shock was just something that grandmothers had, like a a shock of white hair or or lines on their faces or glasses, wearing aprons. All grandmothers did that. My grandmother's shock made her walk a little different, but other than that, she she did everything the same. Um, The fingers of one hand, her right hand, were curled into her fist. She couldn't move that or work it, and, and this arm just swung back and forth. She couldn't really use that, nor could she use her right leg. And she had been right-handed, so she had to work everything with her left hand, but that was okay. She grabbed a cane with her left hand, and she plunked her cane down and swung her leg forward and plunked her cane down and swung her leg forward, and that's how she got around. She even painted watercolors with her non-dominant left hand. She used to paint figures, but 
after her stroke, she painted florals and landscapes because it could take a wiggle and still look good. And Grampy, he framed all the pictures so she could exhibit them, sell them. They were a team. Now, I said that she couldn't do laundry, but she actually could do part of it. She could take the clothes, put them in the washing machine. When they were um, washed, then she put them back in the, the, um, the basket. And then Grampy would take the basket down to the clothesline and hang up the clothes and leave the basket there, empty. Because at the end of the day, on a nice sunny day, Grammy could make her way down that path between our houses to where it forked off down to the clothesline. And she could go down there and unpin the clothes, let them drop in the basket and kind of push the basket along with her cane and unpin the clothes until the basket was full of dry clothes, ready for my grandfather to pick up when he wanted to come back from errands or finish his project, take back into the house. That's the way it worked. So this one day, it must have been laundry day, because Grammy had headed down to the clothesline along that path that we both traveled. She plunked down her cane, swung her leg forward and plunked down her cane, swung her leg forward, plunked down her cane. It slipped on the pine needles, and she fell. Now, she couldn't get up on her own, but she hadn't hurt herself. So she just rolled over onto her back, making herself as comfortable as possible, knowing that my grandfather would be back pretty soon, and, you know, she'd just wait, and he could help her get up. Everything would be fine. But I came along first. I came down the path. I saw my grandmother lying on the ground. Now, this was not like something Grammy would do. She was not a camper, (laughs) not like my parents. There's no reason why she should be lying there, so I was kind of shocked and said, Grammy, why are you lying on the ground? Well, I was just four years old. She didn't want to scare me. So without skipping a beat, she didn't want to tell me she'd fallen. She just looked up and smiled at me like she always did and said, why, I was waiting for you to come along so that we could play the cloud game. Lie down here beside me. And she patted the ground beside her. So I lay down and I snuggled up to her powdery, scented arm. And she said, Look up at the sky. See those clouds? Tell me, what pictures are they making? So I stared up through the pine boughs and saw a fish and a horse and a dragon opening its mouth to consume the horse and the fish. We must have played this game for about five minutes till my grandmother said, do you think that your mother would like to play this game too? (laughs) And I said, oh, sure, but she's talking on the telephone. She said, well, why don't you go tell her that I am lying here on the ground waiting for her to come and play? Can you tell her exactly that? And I said, sure. So I ran off to tell my mother what my grandmother had said. My mother immediately slammed down the phone and ran down the path ahead of me. I was surprised that she was so anxious to play the cloud game. (laughs) But when she got to my grandmother, she didn't lie down beside her, but started asking all kinds of questions about it. Was she okay? Uh, Should she get a doctor? Had she hurt herself? And uh, my grandmother was trying to just shush her and say, Dorothy, I'm fine. Just help me stand up. So my mother was finally convinced that she was okay and helped my grandmother stand up. Grammy brushed pine needles off the side of her dress, and I brushed pine needles off the back of her dress, and then she 
was, she agreed to be walked back to her kitchen by my mother and I. And finally, when we got there, she kicked us out and said, just go take the clothes down. So we went and took down the clothes, brought a basket of clothes back to her patio. And she was there to meet us and said, now leave the clothes there, go in the kitchen, bring out those cookies and uh, that pitcher of lemonade, and let's all sit down. So I got the cookies. They were those cornflake cookies topped with a maraschino cherry. My mother brought out a pitcher of lemonade. We set it on the glass top table and, and all sat around and talked. And I told my mother about the cloud game. And uh, Grammy said, oh, Dorothy, you didn't get a chance to play, did you? <laughs> well, Patty, um, why don't you just take a couple of towels out of that basket and, and lay them down right there um, where you can see between the trees? Oh, Dorothy, it's fine. Just do that. And so my mother laid a couple of towels, dairy cloth towels, down on the patio, and I laid down beside my mother. We each lay on our towel and looked up through the trees, and I leaned over and said, Look at the clouds, Mommy. Tell me, what pictures do you see? Now that story took place when my grandmother was probably about five years younger than I am right now. <laughs> but I, I've lived long enough to um, land on my back on the ground on more than one occasion, if not literally, then <laughs> metaphorically. And I have the example of my grandmother, Ada Lucy Nut Brown Spaulding, to show me that it's okay to fall. And if you can't get up, well, that's okay. Just make yourself as comfortable as you can. And wait. Somebody will come along or something to help you stand up again. And then keep going. Plunk your cane down. Swing your leg forward. Plunk your cane down. Swing your leg forward. Well, thank you, Pat, and thanks to all of tonight's storytellers and to our studio audience for being a part of this experience. Coming up next, we will have an interview by David Frainer of Austin Surrett. But before that, let me tell you a few things. Remember that next month, December, we won't have either a regular show or a workshop. We will pick back up in January. Our next True Tales Live show will be on Tuesday, January 29th. The theme is Birth and Beginnings. We're now taking sign-ups for all of our 2019 shows, so email us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com to join in and get your spot. If you are interested in telling a story, but you're not really sure of yourself, or you'd like some feedback, or you just like sharing your stories with people, because we have a lot of fun at the workshops, you are invited to come 
and sit down or stand up. We do make you stand up. With myself, David, and Pat, we do these workshops here at PPMTV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, on usually on the first Tuesdays of most months. I'll tell you about that in a minute. They're, at, they're from 7.30 to 9. They're free and open to everyone. The next one is January 8th, and yes, that is the second Tuesday, because <laughs> we didn't figure January 1st was going to feel like a good time for a lot of folks to come out, so we did that. <laughs> you can watch our show on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And any time as video on demand, you can go to youtube.com and search for PPMTV True Tales Live to find all of our shows. So let's give some thanks to a few folks who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales live show, on behalf of all of us, thank you so much for listening and watching, and stay tuned now for the interview with David and Austin. <laughs>